And here we are again. And uh, David Kellogg, thank you for doing me the honor of returning and speaking with me. Very kind of you. And uh, how are you? Good. And yourself? Yeah, I can't complain. Can't complain. It's been an unusual year, but quite a good one. And all things considered, you know, um, I, I'm kind of a indoor person anyway. I do. A I do well. Always I do well in isolation. Sorry. Crises always inter always reveal interesting things yeah, about indeed. the world we live in. Yeah, yeah, and and that was certainly something I was thinking early on last year. Um, in terms of some of what I've been learning about development and Vygotsky's theory and the relationship between different types of dramatical categories, or lack of a better term, and uh, some of the consequences, both good and bad, from that. Um, but yeah, it's very kind of you to come back and take my request. I've been reading some, some work that is not yet released the public that you've been nice enough to share with me. And uh, there, are certain, there are certain ways that you talk about concepts that I just find, uh, what is it, veering or interesting or quite useful, uh, illuminating perhaps. I don't want to lay it on, I don't want to lay it on too thick, but you know, like uh, you could have an understanding of a word and, and, and my understanding of many of these Vygotskyan terms is still relatively, uh, in its infancy, uh, but you could know a word pretty much, but not really, you know, like uh, own it or, or taste it or be able to chew on it and, and, you know, be super fluent in it. So I'm still developing my concepts for sure. And uh, there are three in particular that I was hoping we can get into tonight based on what I've enjoyed in your, in your writing. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to pause for just a moment to share something. And uh, I'm going to just share my screen, if that's okay. Please. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much. So one way that I'm trying to ground myself in this theory with uh, many parts, some of which are over my head, and many of which I'm just slowly starting to grasp, is the system of concepts approach. So this is where I am currently, and I'm sure it will develop because it's changed quite a bit over the past year. And uh, I'm focusing on cultural historical theory as opposed to chat, which I'm still not fluent in at all, or any sort of post Vygotskyan things. And uh, there are different like categories here where there's the, the main subject matter and different processes. And then the fact that the theory, as I understand it, has both a theoretical and a research or methodological component. and this is a mess over here. It's just like a stuff I could think to add that might be concepts that might be the wrong term, but these are things that I can talk very minimally about. And I believe that I would, I would have to be able to speak in depth about these to, to really like kind of grok what's going on here. And one of the problems is that in order to speak about one of these things, you kind of have to understand other concepts and how they relate to each other. So that's sort of the, uh, like the irony in some way. Um, kind of can't understand one without the other, but then you try to understand them in conjunction and it's like a slow spiraling process for lack of a better term. Then I might add 
different laws of Vygotsky's theory, which I'm still learning about. And I know, I believe there are nine, but what do I know? So to summarize, these right here at the top are what really struck me in the latest piece that I was reading from you. And I was hoping we can get into that. Um, and if, if the conversation touches upon some of these other features, that would be fine. And if not, honestly, I just want to kind of follow your lead. And the, the, the part of your, part of your uh, chapter that struck me directly was the, the concept of the synopticon. So if you don't mind, do you want to just riff on that a little bit or? Sure. Um, it's a word I made up. And mm -hmm. upwards has a great advantage. Uh, you have to remember, for example, that Vygotsky himself doesn't really use cultural historical theory as such, and certainly not this cultural historical theory the way we use it today. So um, he picks up the words in his environment and goes to great lengths to criticize them and then fill them with his own content. I'm being lazy, preferred to, to invent my own words, but um, it's not entirely invented. It comes from Foucault, who had the idea of the panopticon, which mm -hmm. is a prison that is set up so that one person, you know, this is before they had CCTV, one person right. can die and all the different prisoners at the same time. And the synopticon is a way of turning a process that unfolds through time into something you can circumambulate, something you can walk all the way around and see the beginning, the middle, and the end all at once. Mm. Now, there is a terrible problem with doing this. Uh, life ain't like that. The beginning is not the same as the end. Uh, the way we develop is not the way our children will develop and it's not the way our parents developed. And so by reducing something to a snapshot, you are fixing it in a way that is slightly unrealistic. So this is why I like paintings. I like mm. paintings. And uh, maybe if you can share Vermeer for a minute, I'll sure. riff on Vermeer. Um, okay. Not so much on Vermeer, but um, on the concept you originally started with, which was Peter uh, Vedinia, which is the concept of interweaving and um, intertwining, uh, which is how I got into it. I mean, like you, I puzzle over things. Um, mm. I think I don't puzzle in exactly the way that you do, Anthony. I think, Anthony, one of the things you do a lot of is to make lists of bullet points, and I never do this <laughs> because I find that chopping lists. Um, are very prone to category error. Mm. It's a category error. Category error is when you're driving by a, a field with your kids in the back seat and you see a cow and a bull and you say, look at those three, <laughs> two cows and a pair of cows. You know, it, the, reason <laughs> the reason your count is wrong is that some of your categories include others and within the categories that you thought, you know, were one, there are actually two things there. So for example, one obvious example is tools and science. Uh, okay, they're obviously different. Well, okay, so then they're part of mediation. But then if they're part of mediation, <laughs> you know, then there are really two things and not three because you're confusing different areas of abstraction, different levels of abstraction. Uh, so I don't usually um, make shopping lists. I find that shopping lists lead to um, category errors. They lead to you saying, look at those three things. Mm. Um, 
a cow, a bull, and a pair of cattle, <laughs> which is a category error. It's a mix-up because you're including one concept within itself. Here's my sin. This is the way I get confused. I have, I trained as a painter in China, and uh, I have a very pictorial imagination. And so, um, so Anthony says to me, he wants to study interweaving or intertwining mm. as a metaphor. And I say, oh, great, we'll start with Vermeer. <laughs> we'll start with lace making. <laughs> and of course, a painting, which is a very good example of a synopticon, because you have to remember this is 400 years before people took snapshots and selfies. Uh, this is the closest you could get to a snapshot. That is to say, to freezing a single moment of development, a single moment of a process so that you can view it from different sides. Mm. Uh, be better if it was a sculpture. You could walk all the way around it and see it from all the different sides. Uh, but Vermeer's not bad. He's pretty good. And I'm going to suggest that there are, in this painting, uh, this synopticon, the synopticon of a moment of, um, of a process, of a labor process, there are at least three things we can call not neoformations, but new formations. I don't want to call them neoformations because to me, neoformation is a term in pedology, not cultural historical theory, but pedology. Uh, and pedology is a dead science that I'm trying very hard to resurrect because we need it. Uh, it's a dead science. It was killed, murdered uh, by Stalin and by uh, the epigonies of Vygotsky, the people who wanted basically to create activity theory. Uh, and so pedology doesn't exist today, but neoformations, pedology is the science of development, but not all development. It's the science of the part of development you know, before you're born, you are growing but not learning. That's before you're born. And then there's a the kind of thing that is learning but not growing. That's what you and I do, Anthony. You know, we sit here and we talk and we learn, but I don't, you seem to be the same height that you were the last time I saw you. And I know I am the same height. <laughs> so you could say that we are learning but not growing. Pedology is a science that's designed to study the people in between, the people who are learning and growing at the same time. And it's designed to see learning and growing as two ways of looking at a single complex but unified process that involves both the body and the mind. Mm. Like labor. Labor is a unified process that involves both the body and the mind. So I don't want to use the term neoformation because I think that's a pedagogical term and this young woman is young but not that young. I think she's an adult. So I, I want to say, and certainly Vermeer when he painted this painting was an adult. In fact, this is a mature Vermeer. Uh, so I'm going to say there are three new, new formations, not neoformations, but new formations here that are worth noticing and they're because they're relevant to what we want to talk about. First one is light that um, you know, you, you go back a hundred years and all the paintings seem like everything is emitting its own light. Though the light is sort of everywhere and nowhere. But here the light is somewhere. Uh, and that's an important part of Vermeer's snapshot insight. And this, I mean, I, I, and this, David, I'm going to interrupt you very briefly. Sure, go ahead. Just, just to point out, and excuse me for that, 
that this is this is exactly what I'm talking about when I say that uh, that you bring you bring a dimension to these conversations that it just like never crossed my mind before, you know. And here we are talking about the lighting and this painting and whatnot. Um, and I know it's going to come back around, but that that's that's bringing like a 360 degree, or at least starting to bring a 360 degree view to the concepts themselves. At least for me, that's what happens. So I, I appreciate this. So sorry, keep going. No, no, you could see that the idea of light is connected with the idea of a moment. And a moment is a kind of synopticon because moments in the philosophical sense uh, are complete holes. They're like stills in a, in a motion picture. You know, they're, they're they're a single unified object, uh, but they're part of a longer process. And this is very important to the way that Mozart writes his music. Uh, Mozart supposedly had a synoptic way of seeing a piece of music before he could hear it. He could see the beginning, the middle, and the end, all in one, one single thing that he could just download and write out for you in time. Uh, and it's also a big part of the way Vygotsky is trying to describe processes for us. Now, I, I want to point out that this is slightly dangerous, that you freeze uh, development in order to study it, you are taking out something. So like when you use a map or when you use a painting, you've got to keep kicking yourself and saying, it's only a map, it's only a painting, it's only a metaphor, or it's only a list of bullet points. It's only a shopping list. All of that's, these are tools. Territory. Yeah. yeah, all of these are tools and you have to keep in some ways, the most useful thing about tools is when they break or bend or, or they don't do exactly what you want to do. <laughs> and then you realize, oh yeah, <laughs> not necessarily I need a better tool, but I need a very good grip on what I'm doing. That's what she's doing. She's getting a good grip on what she's doing. So the second new formation here, see, the Italians had already done the light thing, although they did it in a very different way. You look at Caravaggio and you see this kind of warm, sweaty light. And this is kind of cool, uh, illuminating light. Uh, and so he's borrowing this kind of idea of light and in order to shine it on work, on labor. And you can see she is not looking at you. She doesn't care about you. Um, she's not even looking at her Bible, although that, that object next to the work table is probably a Bible. Uh, she is focused on making lace, on interweaving, intertwining threads. You can see the threads coming out of the pillow and interweaving them into some beautiful lace. Mm. So this is a, the second new formation that the, the beauty of everyday life deserves your attention as much as the crucifixion of Christ or you know the garden of Gethsemane and all of the things that the Italians were painting. That this, this too deserves us, deserves our full attention. Yeah, you, know, you can almost see this in the painting that here's this lace maker. She's wearing lace. And look at what she's done with her hair. That's, she spent a couple hours on that hair this morning. She's really using her beautiful labor skills to make herself beautiful for you and for, and for Vermeer and for this painting. So that's the second new formation. Uh, the second new formation is that importance of work. And the third one is the snapshot idea. 
because this is new. I mean, she's clearly in motion, but her hands are not blurred. There is some blurring in the painting. If you look at objects in the foreground, they're slightly blurred. They are. You, know, you can see the, you know, the, the edge of the tablecloth there is blurred and her dress is kind of blurred. Uh, and even her face is kind of blurred. And uh, that blurring ability is to draw you into the painting so that you focus on what she's focusing on, namely her lace making. Uh, so there is a kind of snapshot, even the focus of a snapshot uh, feeling to the painting. And that, that third thing, the snapshot thing, is the thing I was trying to capture with the idea of the synopticon, being able to take a frame of um, development and study it from the beginning to the end and in the middle, all at one and the same time. As I said, this is dangerous. Uh, you have to keep reminding yourself that uh, development itself develops and that um, we are not just pursuing a circular path through development, that there is another dimension. But uh, it's also extremely useful, and it's particularly useful for the kinds of things that you and I want to do. Because the thing I really dig about your work, Anthony, because you work too, is that you're constantly trying to bring this stuff down to earth. You're constantly trying to take things out of cultural, historical theory and put it into the classroom or even the family. Some interpersonal context where, um, where you can actually see what the practical implications are. That is more Vygotskyan than anything. Vygotsky insisted that you cannot do theory without constant praxis, and you can't do praxis without constantly thinking about generalizations and abstractions. So the generalization I was going to talk about was um, sex education. Um, did you look at the other lace maker? It's done two years after this lace maker, and it's still kind of a, an interesting one. Um, I, it's the other lace maker I included. Yeah, it's on the it's on the document. Just hold on one second, please. Okay. Um, yeah. Aspirin. Okay. Okay. Here we have it. Okay, this one was done about two years after Vermeer's, and obviously, this person, Casper Nietzsche had seen Vermeer's and envied it and really missed the point of it. <laughs> when you read the critics on this painting, they obviously can't agree. So you read uh, the description in the Wallace Collection, uh, whoever the curator is says, this is a picture of bright domesticity, the necessity of the obedient and, and devoted and um, uh, devout housewife in order to keep an orderly house. And, you know, pays attention to the broom, uh, ignores the crack in the wall, the muscles on the floor, and the fact that there's a pair of man's shoes under her chair. <laughs> so <laughs> that critic is missing something. <laughs> you read the other critics and they say, no, 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 this is really a whore. It's a prostitute. And uh, she's wearing a red dress. And if you look at her dress very uh, sorry, she's wearing a red blouse, and if you look at her dress very carefully, you can find sort of female genitalia, and the muscles on the floor are aphrodisiacs, and you know, and so on and so forth. And so they get exactly the opposite interpretation of this of this painting. Um, I think the crack in the wall, the muscles on the floor, 
the overall poverty and the youth of the young woman, to me, suggests that lace making is not her only profession. And this is probably what Casper Nischer is trying to tell us. That was true at the time, that the women came from the countryside, they uh, tried to make a living honestly in Amsterdam, and they very often found themselves preyed upon for money. And this brings me to the question that I've been thinking about. This is what brings me down to earth. This is my equivalent of teaching eighth graders literacy. Um, it's how do we teach children to say no when they don't really know what they're saying no to? To me, this belongs in pedology. You can call it cultural historical theory if you want, and I'm willing to say that um, cultural historical theory can contain uh, the kind of pedology that I have in mind. But I have in mind fairly practical things that I want to do. I think that teaching children to say no, when they're not really sure what they're saying no to, <laughs> teaching children to say no to adults is kind of the most concrete, most specific, um, most practical way of thinking about developmental crises. And in fact, when we go back over the, the developmental crises that Vygotsky's talking about, we see that no plays a very important role. Uh, for reasons that Andy will be very happy to explain to you because it has to do with negation, negation of the negation, and so on. Uh, but uh, the very first crisis after the child acquires speech is, could be easily described as the crisis of no, the crisis where the child um, wants to do something, but no, the child will not do it because you proposed it. And I'm just going to say no to you. No. Uh, this is a revolutionary moment when the child is reaching out for that monosyllable that makes such a difference in the child's life. I'm going to control that monosyllable too, even if I don't get what I want. When the can, child can I, wants can, can I ask what you mean by revolutionary? Is that a is that a very particular term, or is that you using that sort of generally here? I I think I use it more particularly and more generally. <laughs> than most people. So um, I think it's more particular because for me, it always involves turning the tables. Uh, that means uh, I was in the guided role and now I'm gonna be in the guider role. Uh, I was passive, now I'm gonna be active. Um, uh, you were the boss, now I'm the boss. And to me, that is not a part of, for example, the Bitcoin revolution or the, uh, the K-pop revolution, or any of the other millions of revolutions that um, the bourgeois media bombard us with every single day. Uh, mm. They leave out the crucial component of who shall rule and who shall be ruled, which to me is the, the key to revolution. And at the same time, you're quite right. I'm using it more generally than in a political sense, because I'm using it in a pedagogical sense. I mean, mm -hmm. Pedology is not politics. Pedology is um, at, at one and the same time more interpersonal because uh, it is about how specific concrete individuals exercise power and interactions. And at the same time, it's um, more broadly historical and even phylogenetic because a lot of what we talk about, particularly in sex education, is the legacy of, of our 
human bodily evolution. You know, it's the way our bodies have evolved. Um, sexuality, for example. So, uh, yeah, you're right. I'm using it in a way that is very <laughs> idiosyncratic, very particular, and also very general. And you are right to intervene at that point. <laughs> um, yeah, but at the, at the risk of throwing you off, the, off your rhythm, so uh, pardon for that. Oh, I have no rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were talking about the significance of, of the, the no moments or, or, even the, right. or, even yes, the, or even the importance of helping somebody develop that capacity. Right. Um, and uh, for this, I think I would like to look at the, um, uh, the sex education materials from Korea. And because I want to make this as concrete as possible, as specific as possible. Um, can you call that up or is it too much trouble? Yeah, sure. Yeah, one sec. Oh. Okay. Okay, here we go. Okay. Uh, these are materials that were introduced in 2015 uh, to fulfill the 15-hour-a-year mandate that the Korean government has for sex education. They were almost immediately criticized by the United Nations and by Human Rights Watch, and they were withdrawn, but they were replaced with nothing. And so our Korean teachers are basically just jamming out there in the classroom. Uh, and this is a bad thing, but it's also a great opportunity. You know, you don't have the government breathing over your neck for a few years, and you can teach some interesting stuff. But of course, we would like to use what we can uh, from the materials we've got. So, and, and we want to reread them with the Vygotsky and I. And right now here in Korea, we're putting out uh, Vygotsky's, um, it's, well, what is it? It's, we don't even know the title. Um, it is, according to some translations, a teaching on the emotions because it's based on Spinoza and Descartes. And according to other translations, Bandivir and Zavashneva, uh, it's a theory of the emotions. And I would argue that the theory of emotions is exactly what's missing. That what we've got is a, a very thorough criticism of previous teachings on the emotions. And Vygotsky basically saying no <laughs> to Descartes. And, and also, by the way, Spinoza. Although Spinoza is brought in as a kind of antidote to Descartes, it's clear that Vygotsky is not very happy uh, with a lot of what Spinoza says. And in particular, he doesn't see Spinoza as sufficiently developmental, and, and, or anyway, not developed enough. So, okay, so one thing we can say about these sex education materials is that they're quite Cartesian. And by that, I mean meat on one side, meaning on the other. So on the left-hand side, you basically got sex education for the body. And on the right-hand side, you've got chicken soup for the soul. Uh, so on the left-hand side, you've basically got, uh, here's what you need to know for your first period. Uh, it's actually a description of how human conception takes place in fairly standard scientific terms, actually fairly opaque scientific terms from the children's point of view. And on the right-hand side, this is the top, you've got how do children say no. Hmm. Name of the exercise is let's practice refusing. Let's practice refusing. Okay, that's the, that is the teaching goal that we have set before elementary school kids. And remember, these are 
seven-year-old, eight-year-old kids, okay? And seven, eight-year-old kids in Korea are taught to be very friendly, very open, and above all, respectful and helpful when they meet their seniors, when they meet um, anybody who is older. So the first one basically has an old lady who's carrying some very heavy luggage, and I'm running to school. I'm a little boy. I'm running to school. I'm late for school. And the old lady puts down her luggage and says, oh, little boy, this is just too heavy. Can you help me just carry it down the street a ways to that little alleyway over there? And um, can you help me? And you have to be able to say no. Second one. Uh -huh. Second one is a little girl. And this guy comes out of the next door, the next apartment door, and says, hey, kid, do you like dogs? I've got this really cute little dog at home, but he's feeling kind of poorly, and my parents aren't home. So why don't you come over, and you and me will look after the little dog until my parents get back home, and the little girl has to say. Now, you see the problem. First of all, these two situations are really not equivalent. But presenting them this way makes them equivalent in the child's mind. Secondly, and most importantly, um, the, how does the girl understand why I have to say no? There's no sex in this sex education. There is on the left-hand side, sort of. I mean, although, actually, to tell you the truth, uh, last week when I was teaching the left-hand side, the, I, I got a lot further with the kids if I talked about artificial insemination in cows, <laughs> which is why I was talking about cows earlier. <laughs> that if you, wanna, if you want to explain uh, how conception takes place, uh, actually doing artificial insemination in cows is much more useful. <laughs> and, and by the way, teaching about artificial insemination in cows also has the advantage of the way you have to do it is actually reach into the cow's butthole and grab the cervix and then stick the gun in, uh, which is very dangerous. You get kicked all the time. Of course, you're trying to make a distinction. That actually, it's not that orifice. You reach in that orifice so that you can get at another orifice. Uh, and, and that gets you, actually, as you can see in middle school, the next lesson we're going to be looking at is how do you prevent HIV, AIDS. Uh, very timely lesson very difficult lesson to teach. Mm. Uh, and I would say these materials are almost useless. Uh, first of all, you know that when you give kids a test, the tests are designed to confuse them. They're designed to have you choose the wrong answer rather than the right one. Uh, and they're designed to make you hopefully remember the right answer and not the wrong one, but very often <laughs> they don't have that effect. The kids walk away remembering the wrong answers. So this kind of thing, like choose the way in which AIDS can be spread and which are the ways that AIDS cannot be spread, you're asking for trouble. And, in, and that's ignoring the fact that the most important way in which AIDS can be spread is not represented here at all. And that's the butthole, as my students put it. And that is what you need to worry about if you're really going to give kids useful information about the AIDS pandemic, uh, which was the great pandemic of my own age. It was the mm. pandemic that marked my generation the same way that, the, that COVID is marking this one. Now that is the Cartesian side. 
that is the side that has to do with the physical growth of the human body. And on the right-hand side, what you have is a, an exercise called which means my decision. And you're giving this to middle school students and they're supposed to check the blank, will I or will I not have a friend partner of the opposite sex in the coming year? And you're supposed to decide which one and you're supposed to explain why. Now, you can see that this is next to useless as well. That um, particularly the last bit at the bottom, which says, oh, you did well, no matter what you decided, it's your decision. <laughs> well, <laughs> I submit that this is not going to help us solve the Casper Nietzsche problem, which by the way, is a Korean problem. Um, Middle-aged salary men with lots of money do like to prey on little girls in high school and middle school uniforms. I'm, I don't know why this is something of a mystery to me, but uh, it is a major social problem that the kids in Korea uh, mm. can get extra money um, through prostitute through what is essentially prostitution. Okay, let's see. Uh, did did I talk about the um, foreign language scientific concept metaphor, or did you cut out at that point? Cut out. Okay, so here's here's what I was saying. Um, we have to be careful about any metaphor. And by the way, interwoven, intertwined, it's a metaphor. Uh, it is not a theoretical explanation. Theoretical explanations begin at the point where you say it's a metaphor. What are the limits of this metaphor? Why are the limits of that metaphor there? And Vygotsky does this beautifully in chapter six of Thinking and Speech, where he comes up with a beautiful metaphor. He says, the child's acquisition of scientific concepts is like the acquisition of a foreign language. This is a beautiful metaphor. You know, in most languages, science concepts are in foreign languages. So for example, uh, in English, they're mostly Latin and Latin, they're mostly Greek. <laughs> uh, in Korean, they're mostly Chinese. You know, you borrow stuff from a foreign language and you borrow the words along with the ideas. Uh, but it's not just that, it's that uh, they're both taught in schools. They both involve a lot of homework. Uh, they both make you feel like you're not very fluent and you're somehow kind of stupid, even though you're not. Uh, and they both have to be taught in systems. They both involve conscious awareness. Uh, and so it's a great metaphor. You can really run with it. And Vygotsky runs with it for a couple of pages and then says, hmm, every foreign language is someone else's native language. That's not true with scientific concepts. <laughs> so you can see the theoretical explanation begins where the metaphors start to break down. And so Although, you know, I think the question you ask about interwoven and intertwined is a great question. Here's my question. At what point does the metaphor really break down? I, I got into this because I was faced with a problem in my own understanding. On the one hand, Vygotsky very clearly says that uh, neoformations are new formations. They're new. They're new. They're unprecedented. They're unique. They're not there in development. And that's what makes development develop. And on the other hand, he says, they 
are the culmination of some line of development. So they're not completely new, obviously, because they're there in the line of development as well. Not only that, the line of development actually used to be, in the previous period, it used to be a peripheral line of development. So for example, he says, he says this, that um, in infancy, speech is not a major line of development. There's a lot going on in infancy, but it ain't speech. Uh, and then in early childhood, speech does become a major line of development. And then in school age, it isn't because thinking and intellectualization becomes the main line of development. Now, this does, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm having trouble because on the one hand, the neoformations are completely new. And on the other hand, they're tied to these lines of development, which are really very old and they go twisty. So how do I make sense of this? And the way I made sense of it was um, to say that, first of all, development itself develops uh, lines, the various threads that we find, for example, in speech, the phonology thread, the lexical grammatical thread, various threads of semantics. And I would say that, um, I would say that semantics is more than one thread because there's clearly an interpersonal thread. There's clearly also an ideational thread. There's also some kind of textual thread. Uh, politeness is one thing in our, in our materials. Um, describing the physical system is another thing. Those are different threads of semantics and they have to be handled slightly differently. But they're all braided together somehow and interwoven. <clears throat> I did say that in addition to intertwining and in addition to interweaving, there has to be splicing. And that's because lines of development break and they have to be tied up again. Uh, and you can really see this in critical periods that uh, the line of development of imitation, for example, gets broken. Uh, and the, the line of development of the urvir, the, the sort of the shared we that the child had, uh, gets broken and has to be spliced again. So all of this is great metaphor, you know, <laughs> and, and it solves the problem because clearly what is new is not the thread. What's new is the pattern. The pattern is new. And uh, so, it, you know, that as soon as I come on that part of the metaphor, the light streams in from Vermeer's right-hand side and, and uh, left-hand side, and, and uh, suddenly things become clear to me. But then Vygotsky's voice says, what are the limits of this metaphor? And they are many and, and varied. So for example, uh, clothes and human tissue are both tissue. <laughs> But um, it is not the case that your clothes become part of your skin. <laughs> and it is not the case that somehow skin exudes or excretes clothes or something like that. And so there are definite limits to this metaphor. And this is why it's always useful to have readers who say, hey, that's a metaphor, <laughs> unpack that. And by unpack it, um, he, what, what I think you want me to do is to find the end of the, the place where the metaphor no longer really works to explain. That was what I wanted to say about interweaving. But did, one of, did one we... Of my, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite things that you wrote was the concept, was the idea that uh, as neoform, and you correct me, of course, as, as neoformations develop, they, the 
maybe the in intricately woven pattern has to sort of be picked apart and, and, and then it sort of gets reconfigured in some way uh, into, so, so these aren't necessarily individual higher psychological functions that are forming, but instead they are like new, new whole patterns that maybe highlight the development of certain functions. Is that, is that accurate to what you were saying or to what Vygotsky is saying? Yeah, well, there's another really big problem with the metaphor. It's this, mm -hmm. how does weaving somebody else's thread into my thread, how does that mm -hmm. change mm -hmm. my I mean, it doesn't make, if you take the child's threads and you weave in the adult's threads, okay, you get a new pattern, but that doesn't fundamentally change the fact that the child has a child thread and you've got an adult thread and they're, they're fundamentally different. So that's another problem with the metaphor. Mm -hmm. that's, where, that's where I think it's useful, much more useful than using a metaphor to rise to the concrete and to think about how, what does this mean in an eighth grade class? What does it mean when you are trying to teach people about sex education? You know, what are the different threads that have to be twisted together? And what are the- But can, but can, I, but can I still, can I still ask a couple questions beforehand? Uh, I'm getting greedy because I already talked about like wasting your time. I, I just want to, so when I was like early on learning about the, the development of higher psychological functions, which are all in maybe different states of development, some leading and maybe some receding into the background because this, this is what I had in my head initially and then um, started to get a little more complex and, and my question before I show you all these is is anything visually striking a chord with you and if so which one? Well I'm a phonologist and so the graphic equalizer to me suggests formants in the human voice which I will say are not lines of development. Formants in the human voice are first of all they're in unison you know, the, uh, and they have different functions, by the way. I mean, some of the functions are better for discerning vowels. Some of the formants are better for discerning vowels. Others are, formants are much better for cons uh, consonants. And it's the average of the formants that creates intonation and stress. Mm. And, and one suspects that it's intonation and stress that teach the child about basic mood, grammar. Is it a question or is it a command or is it a, uh, just a statement or, or what. Um, and also vocabulary, because vocabulary involves the child being able to isolate important words in the sound stream. And that, I, see, I suspect, is heavily done through, through stress. Now, of course, none of this is true in a foreign language. Foreign language, it's all about literacy. It's all about Mark's other page. Really. <laughs> uh, and that's why Vygotsky says they're so different. But I, I'm suspecting that during early childhood when speech development is taking place, um, the child is analyzing like a graphic equalizer, like the graphic equalizer, uh, analyzing speech, not into formants, which is, that's what phonologists do, but certainly into prosody and articulation, that is to say, intonation and stress on the one hand and vowels and consonants on the other. Uh, where are these things located? These, these neo-formations or these, or these new, patterns or these changing and uh, uh, un untangled and retangled, picked apart and rethreaded. Where, like, where are they? Are they like a physical thing? Um, they're certainly uh, 
real. <laughs> There's <something laughs> material. Um, I, I hesitate to use the term physical because I don't want to be cartoon. I want to suggest to you that sex education, for example, uh, is a classic example of what we were talking about earlier, how uh, learning and growth have to take place together. That uh, certain kinds of physical growth uh, immediately implicate certain kinds of learning. <laughs> and the particular kind of learning we're interested in when we're talking about sexual maturation is consent, pre-consent, which when you're underage, this is the law speaking, means the word no. That's what it means. <laughs> That's the only kind of consent that the law recognizes when you're underage, and rightly so. So, <laughs> so that's our job. Our job is to teach the kids to say no and mean it. Now, does that no exist physically? Sure, it has physical consequences like nothing. Uh, so for sure, it's a physical sound that you make. You, we can describe it phonologically, but the main thing we need to do is not produce the phonological term, it's to produce the semantics of it. And, to, and, and the semantics get really complicated because if the lace maker comes from the countryside, settles in Amsterdam, and finds that making lace doesn't make enough money, but turning tricks will do really well, is this free consent? And can you really say that before 15, 16, 17, it's not free consent, and then afterwards it somehow is. The, it is a single line of development from the child who says, I'm on my way to school and I'm too busy to help you grandma with your luggage, to the, the child who says, um, no, I'm not going to come over and look after your sick dog because your parents aren't home. That's a single line of development. And we can even extend it to the point where, um, you know, how do you say no to a date? How do you say, yes, I'll snog, but I won't go all the way or whatever it is, the terminology. Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you get to that point? Well, I'll submit to you that although, in one sense, this is a single line of development. It's the development of free will, freedom, consent, control of your own body. And in another sense, it isn't. There, there have been breaks along the way. And some of these breaks are going to be more or less catastrophic for the children. And part of the teacher's job, regrettably, is being able to pick up the ends of the line of development and splice them together into a single cohesive thread. The more indirect, the funnier, the wittier, the warmer, the better. And we need to teach that to kids. That there are a lot of interests, a lot of desires you can be right straightforward about. This isn't one of them. This is one that dare not speak its name. And so the kind of education we prepare for kids should fit the content that we're teaching them. We're teaching them something that dare not speak its name because we want them to understand this before they say yes. They wanna, we want them to understand, and that involves years of saying no, by the way, <laughs> because you don't wanna say yes before you know exactly what yes implies. So anyway, th that to me is the most concrete way of looking at how 
the different threads of pedagogical development, most coarsely the development of bodies and the development of minds. But also, even within the mind, there are clearly some elements that are closer to the child and other elements that are closer to the environment. So uh, one of the mistakes of, social, of sex education is to simply teach about desires. And another mistake is to simply teach about restrictions and, and formal, moralistic, religious, whatever. And both of these things are wrong. The key is to somehow figure out some way to braid them together. That is in the pedagogy of the adolescent. Now, Vygotsky himself was quite critical about this book. I think it's a great book. I love it. And I love doing it with Nikolai. I'm looking forward to bringing it out in two big fat volumes, uh, probably next year and next, next year. Uh, but I also re realize that people are going to you know, they're just going to giggle about some of the terms Vygotsky uses. Like, but I think that if you see the pedology of the adolescent as concept formation, that he's really talking about what forms the very core of thinking and speech. He's talking about interests giving rise to concepts. Then you'll see that the pedology of the adolescent is thinking and speech. It's thinking and speech put into the most intimate and most tangible and most physically real uh, threads of development that we can possibly twist together and interweave. Uh, and also, it's life-saving. Um, the editors put pressure on me to introduce the piece of writing that I sent you with some reference to COVID. Mm. Uh, and I resisted this, um, not because I think COVID's going to go away. I don't think COVID's going to go away. I think the world we've changed, uh, the world we've, we have changed, uh, is changed forever. And um, this morning I was reading in Nature, for example, people who say, you know, this is a crisis. And a crisis is a terrible time to talk about public health. Yeah, really? <laughs> A crisis is no time to talk about health insurance. <laughs> you sure about that? <laughs> uh, so I, I wasn't thinking that COVID was going to go away. I think COVID will never go away. Uh, the only thing is, I think that people should not be reading Vygotsky to find out what to do about COVID. Uh, people should read Vygotsky to find out what is the nature of a crisis and how do we how do we as teachers respond to crises in a way that does not make them chronic, endemic, and ultimately pathological? Because the difference between a crisis and a mental illness is essentially one of them comes to an end. And in that sense, I think there are worse things than being synoptic. Because one of the things that synoptic, the synopticon is trying to draw attention to is that the process of development doesn't have an end, unless you want to count adulthood. But there is a culmination point, and that culmination point is the neoformation. So what we should be asking ourselves is, what is the neoformation of this crisis? <laughs> you know, what is the thing that emerges from this crisis that will continue after it? And I wasn't sure I could put all that in an introduction without driving up for poor Vygotsky. <laughs> so I. I resisted it a little, but you'll notice that it, I did end up putting up 
three paragraphs where I, I do talk a little bit about shuttering schools and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, of, of all the ways to talk about the, the concept of a neo-formation and the way that it might develop why, uh, what, other, what other examples are there besides the idea of negation, which might be exemplified by sex education difficulties in your country? Like what, what, other, what other examples can you think of that might illustrate this sort of developmental pattern? Well, let's talk about two different kinds of neoformations. Critical neoformations and no saying, at least the three-year-old negation, is a critical neoformation. It's a neoformation that disappears. Uh, children, you, you don't go through life saying, yeah, I won't because you want <laughs> You don't do that. <laughs> you learn other forms of negation. And they're linguistically different. They tend to be highly indirect, for one thing. Uh, they're not obviously marked by intonation the way that the three-year-old negation is. So that's a critical neoformation. And there are other critical neoformations. So at seven, children discover that um, you can act out for yourself. <laughs> and Vygotsky is astonished that, you know, kids will spend all their time making faces and samovars and that they'll walk in the room talking like that and stuff. He's not astonished that little children do this. Of course, they do it in preschool. But in preschool, they do it when somebody's watching. And a seven-year-old will do it all by himself. And Vygotsky thinks that's weird. <laughs> you know, you're sitting in a room and you go, ugh, so he says that's a critical neoformation, and he's right. I mean, it, it doesn't, I don't spend a lot of time walking like a duck, and at least not when I'm alone. You know, I, we don't do that sort of thing. But Vygotsky says this is a critical neoformation. It doesn't entirely go away, but it becomes subordinated to some stable neoformation. You still make faces in the mirror when you're shaving sometimes and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it isn't a major part of your activity, and it is very much subordinated to some other activity that you're doing. And so there are these critical neoformations. And the critical neoformations disappear, or rather they are sublated into some stable neoformation. The stable neoformations are always there. Uh, speech, you never lose it. Speech is a neoformation when you're in early childhood, it's what toddlers do. You never lose it. Play, play. <laughs> You and I play, <laughs> People, even when you haven't got time, you put the football game on or whatever it is. You're a basketball player, I know. And so, you know, basketball, you analyze it. There are a lot of repetitive actions. Why do people dribble? Why did that become part of basketball? Uh, it's a, a kind of a, it's this twiddling kind of thing that you see in little children that has been somehow incorporated into a more stable activity. Uh, these stable neoformations, are the things that um, adulthood is eventually made of. And they wouldn't be there without the crises. They wouldn't be there. You know, we would not be able to develop negation without now, because that's where it all starts. So I, I'm going to say there are different kinds of uh, neoformation, and that Vygotsky distinguishes quite clearly between the ones that last and the ones that last, but only as part of the ones that last. So what is what is what exactly is picked apart and rethreaded as 
as uh, new information sort of get formed and then develop into something else, or, or, or as the uh, elective pattern sort of develops into something else? Well, does that, what happens? Does that, de does that depend on the thing that's developing? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, no has to be picked apart into intonation, into Strauss, and into the negator. And you can actually see how this happens in grammar because most people, when they start saying no, most children, when they start saying no, it is sentence external. And by that, I mean it's not part of the verb, it's just out there at the beginning of the sentence. Now, now. And then, then you gradually see incorporation of no into things like gonna, wanna, you know, not gonna, not, don't wanna, that sort of thing. And it gradually makes its way into the middle of the sentence. Then you get negative questions. So it's a grammatical process that you can trace. And I have traced it, not just in English, but in other languages as well. Mm. That's a grammatical way of looking at it. Now, I think that other neoformations, and in particular, I think, as a literacy teacher, I'd be most interested in uh, that seven that seven year old neo formation. That how does a child develop the idea that some things are true, some things are false, and some things are just interesting? They're just kind of funny and fictional. Uh, so the creation of fiction uh, at seven, which probably has its roots in this acting out stuff that the seven year olds are all doing, uh, somehow that becomes a big part of their interest in literature. That um, somehow play is not sort of playing cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians. It's reading books about real cowboys and real Indians mm -hmm. and co real cops and real robbers. And that will take the child a long, long way. Now you can see it's related, <laughs> but it's not exactly the same line of development. And so I would say what has happened is that it the, the critical, the, what I would say has happened is that at seven, the lines of play are picked apart. In particular, the fact that play is always social is picked apart. And it's rewoven to, you know, I can play all by myself with a mirror. Uh, and then that too is picked apart and rewoven into, you know, I can play cops and robbers all by myself with this book, you know, with this book or by writing something. That, to me, is a process of picking something apart, reweaving it together. Now, you may argue that, oh, but the pattern isn't completely new. Of course it isn't. We live in a culture. We have a history. As Marx said, people make their own history, but they don't make it just as they choose. They make it with the weight of all the previous generations. And some of that weight is positive. Some of it bears on our brains like a nightmare. Yeah, okay. That makes yeah. sense. Okay. <laughs> the other thing I was hoping to ask you about was, can, can you riff on this a little bit? Because I, I, I know you've kind of touched upon it, maybe very directly. But as you reread this, can you just sort of riff on this a little bit? Wherever your mind takes you? Yeah, okay. Um, you get Vygotsky uh, a, at a very abstract level. So he says um, the social situation of development is essentially a general abstract relationship between the environment and the child. 
And you can see that's God's eye view. That's from birth right up to 18, you know, and you're, you're flying at 36,000 feet. You can't really make out the details. Of course, both the child and the environment are always present, but they're not always present in the same form. So let's take the meeting point between the environment and the child after the age of not one, but three, okay? The age of no. Uh, let's say that that meeting point is speech. Is speech a single line of development? Nah. There's phonological development, which is really interesting in infants. I think it's great stuff. Um, but after infancy, your phonological development is, there isn't, a, I would say the maximal period of phonological development is early, early childhood. Uh, and it doesn't stop entirely until adolescence when your voice changes, phonological development continues. But I would say that your pronunciation of your vowels and your consonants and your basic patterns of intonation tend to be set by the time the school child arrives in elementary school, in, in, pre, in uh, primary school. So then what happens? Well, the usual story is that you just develop a big bag of words, that what you have is lexical development. You're just building a big vocabulary. Uh, Thorndike, who is a really good example of bigger is better, Anthony. And Anthony was asking me, um, can you give me an example of a bigger is better theory? <laughs> sure I can. Thorndike, <laughs> Thorndike, who basically saw no difference between an earthworm and a graduate student, <laughs> except that the graduate student has slightly more um, associative connections, according to Thorndike. <laughs> they, last year during the George Floyd protests, they uh, took Thorndike's name off of Thorndike Hall at the uh, Columbia Teachers College where he taught for his whole life. And uh, they did this because he was a racist, an anti-Semite, a vicious sexist. But um, to me, that's a little bit like sending Al Capone to jail for tax evasion because the main thing Thorndike was, was a really bad teacher <laughs> and a terrible scientist. So, so the, that's the bigger and better theory. Um, what we need to do is to tease out different strands and to recognize that these strands are not all equally important. So as I said, phonology is important early in early childhood. I would say that lexical development, which is what was Thorndike's big suit, is really part of something much bigger, and that's grammatical development. I don't see a difference between learning vocabulary and learning grammar. It seems to me they're all part of a single thing we can call wording, putting things in words. Um, a lot of the languages I've studied don't really have words. Chinese doesn't really have words. Well, it does have words, but it has words the way that English has syllables. That is to say that distinctions between words are not very clear, whereas the distinction between syllables in Chinese are very clear. So um, in that sense, English and Chinese are kind of opposites. And I think that the Korean, for example, doesn't really have words the way English has words. It has the, the most common sentence in Korean, annyeonghaseyo, is a single word. Uh, and so to, to, to describe things the way Thorndike did is just to describe literacy the way Thorndike did is just kind of getting a bigger and bigger bag of words is not what is happening in elementary school. In elementary school, what's really happening is something much more exciting, the development of uh, grammatical patterns, 
uh, some of which are interpersonal. No, I won't. But also asking questions and um, giving commands. Uh, and some of which are representational. I can call this ideational. They're about sort of sharing experience with somebody who wasn't there. Uh, that's what we normally call communication. And then finally, there's this third thing called textual meaning in Halliday. Textual meaning in Halliday involves weaving together the interpersonal and the ideational into new patterns so that, um, so that it is not simply an effective message. It's also a thing of beauty, a thing of beauty. And to me, that's what teaching literature is about. Teaching literature is like teaching composition in paintings. It's like, uh, it's weaving together the light. Uh, it's weaving together the, the content, the work, uh, and it's weaving together above all the, um, the snapshot, the holism that gives it its texture, that gives every text a texture. And that's why, I, that's why I wanted to start with Vermeer today. <laughs> mm. Just if, if we wanted to visualize a, a portion of this quotation where some of the lines of development or portions of the thread pattern are running closer to the inner life and some running closer to the external world. Uh, What's the question I'm thinking of? Well, is, is there like a, a, a com is there like a complex sort of a interweaving that's taking place within us? And then are there interweavings that are taking place like between us? And is, is there sort of a way to verbally visualize this? Yeah, let me give you a Hallidayan answer and a Vygotskyan answer because they're slightly different, but I think they're compatible. So here's the Hallidayan answer. Um, that there are basically three things that need to be interwoven. The first one is the interpersonal metafunction, and that's mostly mood. Questions, statements, commands, uh, giving and getting information, giving and getting uh, goods and services, okay? That happens through the interpersonal function. The interpersonal function, by the way, is really prosodic. It's why it is that you can say almost anything you want uh, politely, if you use the right tone of voice <laughs> in English. You know, you can say almost anything as long as you get the tone of voice correctly. Uh, that's because the interpersonal metafunction is basically prosodic, and we've developed different uh, grammatical ways of realizing it, mostly for writing, but that's, we'll call that interpersonal. Yeah, that, that's really, that's really interesting. I have a, I think I have a bit of a deficiency with that, honestly, because a lot of times I'll have the language just where I want it possibly not like the uh the song and, and i might yeah and i might i might not always get the uh response or the effect that i'm desiring bookish people are like that uh, my older brother was like that for sure uh people who who spend all their time with books tend to lose the intonation you need for interpersonal interaction now i would say that's closer to the environment why interpersonal interaction is it doesn't take place when you're alone, essentially. It it's only takes place in real time, with, in, with real people face to face. Uh, so I would say that's closer to the environment. The ideational metafunction, which is the ability of you to communicate to me things when I wasn't there, 
involves setting up some representation of your experience and you have to set it up, not me, because I wasn't there. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't see it. So you have to set this up. Now, I'm going to say that's closer to the child, not to the environment, that the ideational metafunction, which is where concept formation has to take place, is more on the child's side of things. It's not entirely there because, of course, when you set up um, a representation of your experience, you do it in such a way that I will understand it. And so there is an interpersonal sort of a proxy interpersonal element when you're setting up your representations to give them to me. So that's those two strands, one clearly closer to the environment, one clearly closer to the child, and then one that really serves to bind those threads together. I mean, you've got two warp threads, you need a woof thread, and that woof thread is the textual metafunction. Now that is the Halliday'an side of things. Vygotsky's different. If you read chapter seven of Thinking and Speech, which is what you've got referenced here, he teases out feeling. He, his actual term is the volitional effective impulse. The volitional effective impulse, but we'll call it feeling. And thinking. Uh, and he does call it thinking. Uh, it's interesting, in grammar, you know, you feel angry, you feel hot, you feel cold. Uh, you can say, I felt that uh, he was wrong, or I felt that people were not understanding, or something like that. But when you do that, when you add a that, you really mean thinking. You don't mean feeling. Feeling in the sense of sensation does not project. So when I say thinking, I mean thinking words or thinking word meanings. I mean thinking that or feeling that. But it, and that's what I mean. And now those two things are clearly different in the grammar, and they're different in the grammar for a reason. Feeling hot, feeling cold, even feeling angry is one thing. And thinking words, or even feeling words, is clearly something else. So feeling, thinking, self-directed speech, which is actually different from thinking. Because when you are writing, or even when you're reading and you hear that voice in your head, it's not your voice. You know, you're reading something and there's something going on in your head. It's not your voice, Anthony. It's my voice when you're reading this. So, uh, so I'm going to say that verbal, that self-directed speech is another level. Uh, and then finally, speech to others. Those are the different threads that Vygotsky lays out. And I think you can see pretty clearly that some of them are closer to the environment and some of them are closer to the child. And also that it behooves us to tease these things out, that uh, it behooves us to differentiate, and the grammar does, and so we should differentiate the ones that lie on the child's side, the ones that lie on the environment side. Not least because there are some kinds of developmental problems, I'm thinking of autism, that, um, or the, the autism spectrum anyway, that are clearly to do with one set of threads and not another set of threads. That was very helpful. Okay, well, I, it, yeah. it's a little opaque of the way I write sometimes. No, 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 that's very helpful because this was, this was one of the passages that was sort of screaming out the loudest to me that I, I felt that I, I was carrying it in my hands, but not uh, the slippery, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like one yeah. of those things when you squeeze it and the, hard, the tighter you squeeze it, like it sort of jumps away from you. 
Well, if you look at that Vermeer, I hope we get back to the Vermeer, you'll see that one of the things that's happening in the Vermeer is that she's got her elbow on a Bible, but next to the Bible, there's a pillow. And for some reason, the pillow is split open and there are threads just pouring out of the pillow. <laughs> some of them white and some of them are red. And, and some of people look at this painting and they say, oh, it's milk and blood and there's all this sexual meaning in it. Nah, nothing to do with that. Some of them are closer to the lace maker and some of them are closer to the environment. That's all. <laughs> so. Vygotsky's, Vygotsky's work on teaching on the emotions is going to be turned into a two-volume comic book <laughs> because, <laughs> because we've always wanted to do Thinking in Speech as a comic book. Um, well, you've got a big advantage that a lot of the other people who work on this don't have, which is every day you, or almost every day, you walk into a classroom or you see your kids or something like that. and. Uh, and that forces you to rise to the concrete. And uh, that's, I think that's the key to understanding all of this. That's certainly what Vygotsky himself was doing. He was walking into the classroom and doing real teaching. And then he was going home. And, you know, one of the most exciting parts of Vygotsky's notebooks is his observations of Asya. We know all about Gita, the, you know, the oldest daughter, but we never hear very much about Asya. And it, uh, Vygotsky's notebooks are mostly about his youngest daughter and his youngest daughter's development. It's, it's pretty great stuff. I'm not a Cartesian. One of the reasons why um, I like Spinoza and I like pedology and I like that period of time when the child is growing and learning at the same time is something in me says that um, Learning is embodied, even in adults, even if your body is not actually changing, you're learning with your ears and your eyes and your brain. And your brain is part of your body. So I don't really like the idea that mind is something separate from physical. I mean, I get it that, you know, when you're looking at embryos, it's very useful to just think of terms of cells. And when you're looking at adults, it's very useful to just talk about mind. Uh, but to me, as a linguist, you cannot talk about meaning without talking about intonation, because intonation is such an important part of meaning. And intonation is very physical. It takes place in your lungs and your voice box, and I, and I can see it on a spectrograph. So I don't like the divisions into purely spiritual, this seems too Cartesian to me. And Spinoza has the answer to this. Spinoza says um, that the order and connection of ideas is the same as the order and connection of things. And everybody looks at this and says, oh, they're two parallel planes. No, he never talks about parallel planes. We are the parallel planes. You can look at an idea from the point of view of an idea, and you can look at it from the point of view of a neural impulse. But it is the same phenomenon. Uh, ideas are nothing but patterns of threads of neural impulses. And uh, I think 
that that was Spinoza's great insight. And this is why he got into so much trouble with Descartes. color code different neural impulses or something like that? Um, let's see. You, you, could see that, you could see that I have no idea what I'm talking about. But. No, no, no. I, I think we don't need machines. I think we've got language. And in particular, we know that um, higher psychological functions are those that are uh, semiotic or semiological. They're higher not because somehow the body acquires extra functions. They are higher because we're talking about not your body or my body, but bodies of human beings who are collectively using semiotic systems. And the higher psychological functions lie entirely within semiotic systems. And so, yeah, we've got a machine that can detect higher psychological functions. It's called language. Language is a machine for detecting higher psychological functions in other people and sharing them and detecting it in ourselves. Um, language is not the only semiotic system. One of the reasons why I like to start with Vermeer is that it does not really depend on language, but it does depend on a system of science, very much so. And I think that um, a lot of the interpretations of the lace maker are really just absurd and ridiculous. <laughs> that I think that um, we we need to develop a little bit our uh, our ways of talking about art as well as our ways of talking about talk. I think I have to go to sleep. Oh, is it late? To, yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to um, work. Okay. <laughs> no, no. The last time, the last time we talked, I got immediately off and went straight to work. And this time, it's going to be the reverse. Okay. All right. Good. One of us is one of us is morning time, and one of us is nighttime. That's we right. Have, we have uh, uh, things. H half of this discussion got deleted when my power went out. So we have we have some uh, things that will work out offline. I told you this the last time we talked. Um, when I listen, when I re-listen and I try to label everything in the conversation and try to break it into segments and, and then listen a third time after that, that's when everything soaks in. Okay. I've always been a slow learner. Um, I, I, I'm trying to listen and think and respond on the fly, but sometimes, sometimes the, the, the reaction you get from me, from me physically while we're talking live is, is not the same that I might get like a day or two later when I re-listen, because then I get it. <laughs> I get it much more, much better. So well, that's going to happen. I, that's going to happen again, actually, I could tell. Okay, good. Then, then actually, you should thank your wife for blow-driving her hair <laughs> and breaking the fuse, because it will give us exactly the kind of pause, the, exactly the kind of interregnum. Yeah, and I, I would prefer to thank you first, uh, and I very much appreciate the way you walk through these ideas. And, and I know some of this stuff is, is very cutting edge and I think some of this stuff is at, at, the, at the forefront, I could be wrong, at the, at the forefront of your latest thinking, it seems. Um, and I appreciate you letting me in on all that. Yeah, but I'm not at the cutting edge. It, you know, when I met Halliday, I realized how very far from the cutting edge I am. <laughs>
there are people who are just way above us. And I feel much closer to you, Anthony. Much closer to you. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. It's always nice to see you. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be in touch. I'll, fo I'll follow up in the, in, the, in the morning with the email and such. And uh, let you know like what we have salvaged. And thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right. Ciao, David. Take it easy. All right. Thanks again. Bye.